Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 180 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Love Wins, an interview with Tori Piskin. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, I really love this podcast, in part because it was such a surprise. We invite on a comedian. We expect to have this sort of irreverent conversation, and we have just the opposite. We have somebody who teaches us that if you can get through the emotional elements of your journey quickly, then you can turn to your healing elements very quickly. And Tori had some built-in cultural and familial support that allowed her to get to the physical healing immediately. And Rich, I had really high expectations with Tori, and she did not disappoint. I always knew the emotional component of healing was really important. And Tori really expressed to us that laughter and humor is so important to get past the hurdles that are needed to get on in your healing journey. Matt, we named this episode Love Wins because it was actually the loving family that Tori had around her that allowed her to get to a physical healing quickly. And what I mean by that is in many cases on this podcast, we hear about doctors disbelieving our podcast guests. We then have family members following the doctor's advice and disbelieving people, which then creates doubt in their own minds about whether or not they're sick at all. And until you get through that portion of your emotional journey, you're not going to be able to begin to heal. But Tori didn't have to deal with any of that. She had a group of people around her who loved her, who supported her and never created any doubt in her mind. And as a result, she had a much shorter healing journey. So without further ado, love wins, Tori Piskin. Hey, Tori, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I feel like I have 10 years of Lyme knowledge to tell you about. Well, good. And we want to <laughs> Unfortunately. Sure. Well, and, and I'm sorry you have time, 10 years of Lyme knowledge for us to extract, but I am excited for our, our listeners to have all of that knowledge rolled out before them. So, Tori, before we get started on, on rolling out all of the um, Lyme knowledge bombs you're going to share with us, why don't you share with us, first of all, where you're from? So I'm from New York. Um, I lived in Long Island till I was eight, and then my family moved to the city. So the opposite of what most people do. We, you know, we generally issue a trigger warning anytime we have fellow Long Islanders on because uh, we do butcher the English language. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad we're going to do that <laughs> together. Our earlier guests are from Long Island as well. I think you're only like our fifth or sixth Long Island guest, which is interesting. So wow. I understand you you have a bi-coastal experience too. Don't, don't you have some contact with LA as well? So yeah, now I live in LA as a 30-year-old adult. I mean, that's what you're supposed to be, but I don't feel it. I live in LA now, but okay. then I still visit my family in New York a lot. So tell us about uh, tell us about your experience growing up on Long Island. Where did you grow up on Long Island and what was the experience like? Um, so I grew up in Syosset and... I, it was like a very fun childhood. We had a backyard. I was very creative. There was like roosters in my neighborhood for some reason, like a farm was there and then they left and they would chase me. And I was just always in my head, like creating stories. And I don't know, I, I had like a very fun childhood in my head. I think everything was good. I think it was a great childhood. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think you were supposed to live in a neighborhood with roosters uh, just because uh, it would be a funny story to tell, right? Exactly. Uh, so, Tori, um, talk to us about what your educational experience was like. Was it a strong foundation? Did you go to a good school district? And do you feel like they were doing a good job of preparing you for life? Yeah, so I actually have dyslexia. So that's one of the reasons I moved. My parents moved to New York because I got into this school for people with learning disabilities. And it was this whole thing. And it was they called it the Harvard of learning disabled school. And I just was like which now I look back and I'm like, that's like 
going to the best rehab center. Like it's not real. Like you don't want to be like the MVP of the learning disabled high school, but okay. Like at the time I was like, I guess that's cool. So then we moved to the city and uh, yeah, I was always like a really hard work. I always was very vocal about being dyslexic because my mom would always be like, you know, telling people we'd be at a store, nothing to do with dyslexia. And my mom would be like, this is my daughter, Tori. She's severely dyslexic. (laughs) Or I was always like the other child because my sister was like the ballerina. Um, So there's a lot of like comedy in there. I think comedy always comes from being a comic always comes from like never getting like enough attention or being validated. So I think it definitely um, stems from that. And then I went to Savannah, Georgia uh, for art school, but I did not want to be an artist. And again, my mom was like, you can't read, you got to do shapes. And I was like, but I literally am, I'm an awful art. Like, do you know what it's like going to a college, but you're, you, you can't draw. Like I literally was like the worst painter. I was like, why am I here? Um, and then I transferred to Emerson in Boston for film and writing. All right. So yeah. uh, now during the course of the time that your mother was shifting you around to various places, to um, overcome your challenges with dyslexia. Uh, did she ever talk to you about um, tics or Lyme disease or any of the challenges that could be presented by coming in contact with uh, tics? I did not know anything about tics until I got bit. I did go to camp and maybe they mentioned once, a few times, I probably wasn't listening, um, but no, I was not educated on Lyme disease at all. So when you say not educated at all, meaning you didn't learn about Lyme disease when you were going to public schools in Syosset, which, by the way, is one of the top school districts in the country. And you didn't learn anything about Lyme disease at any of the various private schools you had attended, either in New York City or in college, um, when you were learning to draw shapes or when you went to uh, film school. No. Okay. So now talk to us about when you were bitten by a tick and what that experience was like. So I never saw the tick bite, which I know what's 50 to 70% of people never actually see a tick bite. Um, I was going into my senior year of college. I think it was in that summer. I just remember one day after working out being like, I'm so tired. I was like, maybe I just didn't eat enough before working out. And then September rolls around, go into my senior year of college. I'm supposed to go to LA for second semester. I'm starting to look at internships. Um, you know, mostly in like comedy late night shows. And I'm like learning how to drive because I'm a New Yorker. So I'm learning how to drive at age 21. And again, progressively just not feeling well, like feeling tired, now sleeping like 10 hours a day. And I just was like, I guess I've been more active since going to school, you know, going to parties more. And then I'll never forget one day I woke up and I was having blurry vision. And I was like, something's really off. It was like, you know, in the middle of the night, you wake up and your eyes take a second to adjust. It was that feeling, but my eyes weren't adjusting. And I remember being like, what is going on? Telling my parents that. um, And I eventually went to the nurse at the college who was also like really mean to me. Now that I think about it, she was like poo-pooing me. She's like, I don't know what's wrong. Like go to the hospital. And I was like, I was like, okay. So I went to the hospital in Boston and they told me that maybe it was cat scratch fever. Now I took that literally. And I said, well, I haven't been around a cat. So I don't know what this is. I was very confused. And I'm telling my parents and my mom is thinking, she's like, 
thinking it's a brain tumor because I have blurry vision. And she's like, your father's coming to drive to pick you up. And I was like, no, because I was a very studious, I was very studious. And I was like, I have a paper. And she was, and then we started cursing over the text message. Uh, and the next thing I know, my dad drove to pick me up four hours. Uh, we get back to New York. I go to the pediatrician because what, at 21, all you have is like, you only go to the pediatrician still, you know, you, <laughs> so I went. Are you supposed to graduate from the pediatrician when you turn 21, Tori? Where else am I? I mean, I didn't like need a doctor at that point. Where was I going? There's nowhere to go. And I just remember she tested me for a bunch of things. I get back to college and I'll never like forget this like very vivid moment. I get a phone call from my dad who had spoken to my pediatrician. I'm crossing like the main street in Boston. And my dad's like, oh, you have Lyme disease. Like you just have to take some pills. And I remember telling my friend who I just saw who knew what was going on with me. And I said, oh, they told me I have Lyme disease. And she said, oh, my dad has had it like four times. You're going to be fine. And I like still just remember it so vividly that moment. Um, and obviously it was not fine. I ended up going on Doxy. Um, so first off, I was very lucky that I knew what it was. I had a positive test, which most people don't. I don't even know why the pediatrician tested me for it. I don't think she like, thought, oh, it's Lyme disease specifically. I think she tested me for a bunch of stuff. Uh, and I remember my Epstein-Barr came back positive, which is very common too with Lyme. So that year of that journey, I was on Doxy, never got better, went to infectious disease specialist. Oh, Lyme disease just takes a really long time to get rid of. Just keep taking the oral Doxy. And again, just not getting better. I wouldn't say I was getting worse, but my symptoms included extreme fatigue, tunnel vision, weird headaches, memory loss, brain. It felt like I was like, um, someone once described Lyme as this, which I thought was very like made sense. It feels like jet lag. Like you just feel like lethargic. And I was also having like weird anxiety and feeling like I, the feeling you get when you're in a scary movie and you feel like anyone's about to pop out. That's the stuff I was getting. But also again, just thinking, oh, it's going to get better. They say it takes a while. And just trying to kind of live the normal college life. Um, and yeah, I didn't end up going to LA that semester because I didn't want to be away from home. But so Tori, let's, yeah. let's, let's pause there for a second, because I, I want to unpack some of the earlier stuff that you talked about before we go forward with your, uh, your treatment journey. Yeah. Now that you've had some time to reflect on this experience, do you believe that you were bit by a tick shortly began before you began to show the symptoms in your senior year of college? Or do you believe that you were bitten by ticks, a tick or ticks earlier in your life and then the chronic illness began to present during your senior year in college? Okay, well, it's right now it's interesting because my mom who has had chronic fatigue syndrome her whole life, fibromyalgia. And when I was in, you know, really sick and I would tell her my symptoms, she'd be like, I have those symptoms. And I would say, you know, I'm doing my research. I would say, I think you gave me Lyme disease. And she'd be like, don't be silly. I didn't give you Lyme. I have my own issues. Um, <laughs> and so now I've come to realize I do think genes play a role in it because not to get into my mom, but my mom had COVID a year ago now then tested positive for Lyme disease. So she's treating Lyme disease, which I was like, I, so I think genetics did play a role in that. And we know that too. Um, 
but I think I got bit that summer, maybe like a month, two months prior to when I started feeling ill. Uh, and yeah, I never saw the tick bite or anything. Victoria, what was your childhood like? Were you sickly during your childhood or were you generally a healthy person until you had the crash in your senior year of college? Um, I wasn't like always in the hospital, but yeah, I would get like sick frequently, but not to, I was in the hospital, just like sore throat, but also um, my mom really didn't care about me going to school. So sometimes when I look back at my memory, I can't remember if it was like I was faking being sick. So I didn't have to go to school and she was just okay with it or I was actually sick. But I think I always was like a little like neurotic child. Um, anxiety was always there. Um, but I wouldn't say I was like an unhealthy child. Well, it sounds to me that your mother probably would be comfortable with you staying at home because you'd get as much enrichment by hanging out with her as you would with your teachers, right? I mean, she sounds like she's a real character. Right. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about your perspective on genetics. You said a minute ago, you think genetics plays a role in Lyme disease. What do you mean by that? And what do you think the parallels are between your mom having Lyme disease and you having Lyme disease? Well, as she's gotten sick and we learned that she has Lyme disease, which my mom is like, you know, so confused. How can I have Lyme disease? Blah, blah, blah. But as you know, COVID now is bringing up some like underlying symptoms of, for people. Um, so yeah, I think my mom just had like very similar symptoms to me. I would say to her when I was really sick, oh, the bottom of my feet hurt. I'm so tired. I feel like rocks are on me. And she'd be like, I feel that. And I was just thought she was just being like a mom. I was like, why are you making everything about yourself? Like, this is my illness. <laughs> but I think it was her illness too, but she didn't know it. And I mean, I was, I go to her to like her doctor appointments and they, the doctors say that genetics do play a role with Lyme disease. I, I mean, it makes sense. Like if you have a compromised immune system already and then you get bit by this tick or any, really any like immune COVID, anything, I think it really affects you. For sure. So when you were saying a minute ago, genetics plays a role, I wasn't sure whether you were arguing that perhaps your mom passed the um, Lyme bacteria onto you congenitally, or you were arguing that your immune history that is passed on to you genetically makes you more or less capable of managing the Lyme bacteria when you come in contact with it. I mean, I think doctors don't even know that because I've asked my mom's doctor who was very good and very cutting on the cutting edge. And she was like, she couldn't, she couldn't even give me an answer, but I think my mom, I don't think my mom passed me Lyme disease specifically. Um, I don't think she got bit and didn't know it at that time. I mean, I think she got bit as a child because she tells me stories of her mom taking her to the doctor and saying, my daughter's always sick. And her doctor saying, oh, she'll grow out of it. Um, so I think my mom just gave me her shitty immune system and, but she gave me other great qualities. Um, and I think that's kind of what happened. I think the, it really affected me, um, that way. So sorry, one of the things we have observed on this podcast is a lot of our guests were sickly children and then they, then they ultimately are diagnosed with Lyme disease. And mm -hmm. what we're not clear about is. Is it, and I'll use your term, is it a shitty immune system that's causing you to be more susceptible to the Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease when you come in contact with ticks? Or is it that somebody is 
uh, coming in contact with Lyme disease very early on in their lives, maybe even congenitally, and then they have a weak immune system as a result of the immature immune system trying to manage the Lyme, and that's why they're sickly. So we don't know if it's a chicken or egg scenario. And, and the reason I was asking you the question is, as someone who had a shitty immune system as a kid, I was wondering what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard stories of kids being like, I've been sick for 10 years. I didn't know it was Lyme. Um, for me, it wasn't that. I just was someone I wasn't, I, I think I was, a. am trying to think. Cause also I think you get like, no, I, I don't think I was a sick kid. I think like, you know, I was on the swim team. I was swimming two hours a day, going to school. Was I tired? Yeah. But was I like coming home and crashing and taking naps? No. Um, was I someone in high school who could sleep six hours? No, I would get sick. I would have to sleep seven or eight. So but so, yeah, I don't think I was like a sick child, but would I get run down easily? Yes. All right. So that but this is now a different experience for you, right? What you're feeling now, your senior year in college is very different than what yeah. you ever had before. And the level of fatigue is unlike anything you felt, which is what triggered you to now call mom, call dad and dad to bring you down to Long Island, luckily to be uh, diagnosed by a competent doctor. Mm -hmm. So. All right, so now you, you have your Lyme disease diagnosis and your expectation is you're gonna take a couple of pills and you're gonna get better, right? Right. How'd that go for you? I mean, not very good. I didn't, like I said, I never got fully better, maybe like 5% better. Maybe I was like 50, not, not better. And, but again, just, oh, it takes so long. It takes so long. That's what I kept hearing. And then eventually I stopped the doxy, which was about, I was on it for a while, like maybe three months because I was seeing an infectious disease specialist, but he wasn't a Lyme literate. No, well, I guess he is, but he wasn't like just a Lyme disease doctor. And again, this is 10 years ago, you know? So I then I think I started seeing this herbalist in Vermont and he sent me a bunch of herbs. And at the time, again, I'm, I don't know anything about really about Lyme disease. I don't know anything about the Herx reaction that you get worse before you get better. And so now it's probably like, I don't know, February, and I take all these herbs and I feel worse. And I'm like, I feel so sick. What's wrong with me? Um, and I just stopped taking it, which I think kind of maybe was a mistake. One of those, not a full mistake, but, you know, I, I didn't know. And I stopped taking it and I graduate college. And I remember being in my graduation and having like a, a mini first panic attack. I never experienced that before because the room was like, um, a factory. It was so big. And I guess that gave me anxiety. And I continued my summer. Like I didn't have Lyme disease. I took on two internships at, at a production company. I was filming with my friends, but again, now I'm going downhill, but really not addressing it. Then I would guess like August of 2013, I'm like really sick. I can't get out of bed. My knees are swollen, panic attacks all day. Like just extreme, extreme fatigue. I think for me, the two biggest symptoms were fatigue and um, anxiety, neurological anxiety, like feeling like I can't leave my apartment. Um, and then I ended up seeing Dr. Raxlin. Um, and he said to me, you're really sick. Um, we're going to culture your blood. I guess that was the, to see if you still have Lyme in you. And that took, I don't know, a month, came back positive. 
And he's like, you're really sick. Either I can give you shots. I remember he said this. He was like, I can give you shots in your ass that sometimes don't work. Or you can do IV antibiotics. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do the IV antibiotics. Uh, I got a pick line. It was almost like exactly a year to the when I got sick in September, I got the pick line. And I just remember being like, this is so, I mean, when you're sick, you're so excited to get this treatment, you know, and I was very lucky that this treatment actually did really get me out of the dark hole. But a lot of people get these treatments and they don't get out. Like my mom right now, she's had a million different things and she can't get out of like the really badness of the Lyme. So yeah, I got a pick line um, and I just moved back in with my parents, really upset because, you know, all my friends graduating first job going to graduate school. And I was like, I'm going to graduate school of Lyme disease. I had, I called it like a wiener hanging from my arm. You know, my friends had their first boyfriend and I'm like living at home. I'm an agoraphobic at this point. Like I can't leave my parents' house and having like weird neurological things. And my sister was getting, just got engaged. Um, and so she's the happiest, I'm the lowest. And my mom is, you know, trying to find a balance with her daughters. And yeah, I just started that year of antibiotics. So Tori, I'm gonna interrupt right there because I wanna back up a little bit. So in September, when you first started treating with doxycycline, did you have a Herx reaction? You mentioned you did with the herbs, but I'm curious if you Herx with the doxycycline as well. I, you know what, I'm not sure if I did, or maybe I did. I mean, not to an extreme where it felt like, I was so, I was very sick when I first started feeling ill, but I don't remember this like extreme, like I'm herxing. And did your symptoms, um, did your symptoms worsen? Did they get better? It sounds like you just sort of stayed the same with the doxy that you were on. Yeah. Maybe they got a little better, maybe a little worse than a little better and then just stayed the same. And, and how long again were you on the doxycycline for? I think around three months. I was on it for a while orally. And what made you decide to stop treating with doxycycline and then pivot over to an herbalist, which is, you know, very different than a traditional Western doctor? I think I just, I think I researched it. I just was, I don't even know. I honestly don't know how I found it. I just was like, I guess I'll try this because I wasn't getting better. But again, the infectious disease specialist was telling me it takes so long. It takes so long. And I think maybe I saw another doctor at that point, but not a Lyme literate doctor. So at this time, still in the beginning, in September, when you started the doxy up until February, when you started with the herbal protocol, were you doing anything with the infectious disease doctor to address your gut health and your immune health and all the things that the doxy damages while treating the Lyme disease? No, I wasn't doing anything. So when you went away from the doxy and went to the herbs, do you recall what herbs specifically you were taking or was it just something that the herbalist had prescribed and you were just taking a handful of supplements that was, that was given to you by the herbalist? Yeah, it was just a handful of supplements. I don't like remember anything. And that sounds like it was pretty short-lived because you had a, a more extreme Herx reaction than you experienced on the doxy. And how long were you on them for before you decided to call it quits because of the Herxing? Uh, maybe like a month and a half. I just find it so odd that the herbalist who probably was claiming to be somewhat of a specialist in Lyme disease didn't caution you that you could have a Herxheimer reaction from the herbs. I mean, maybe he did, but again, I didn't even understand what that word meant. And I, I, you know, I was like 21. I just was like, okay, is this going to make me better? Let's just try it. It was for me now, now it's funny. Like, you know, if I try like a new treatment or a protocol, it's like, okay, I have to prepare myself. I'm probably going to feel worse. 
But back then I kind of went into everything fearless because I didn't, I just thought it was like trying on like a new pair of clothes or like food. Like I didn't think there was going to be this like, you know, a, like a huge effect on me. But now as someone who's like, you know, constantly in different treatments and protocols, you're like, all right, I got to prepare myself. I might feel worse. But like, I didn't know that. And Tori, you're not alone in that. I was the same way. And almost every guest we've interviewed has been that way as well. And unfortunately, these doctors and medical professionals aren't cautioning us or warning us. And it's causing us to stop these treatments that may be able to help us earlier on. But I want to pause here for a second and focus on, you, you mentioned that your mom would always say that, oh, I have those symptoms too. And, you know, it's sort of downplay how sick you really were. Once you had the Lyme diagnosis and once you started treating, did that change at all? Was your mom, was your relationship with your mother and your family any different once you got that diagnosis? Um, well, first I should say that like, so she wasn't downplaying my symptoms. She was just saying that like, like she felt the same way. And me and my sister would laugh being like, why do you have to make everything about yourself? Like, this is my illness. And she's like, no, I'm just saying like, I can relate. Like I, like my bottom of my feet hurt. Like my mom has always been like very supportive. I mean, she's the one who thought I had a brain tumor when it was now. And I'm like, sometimes now I was gonna say like, oh, now it's just lying. But like, it's, it's just as bad. But yeah, no, my parents have been, were very supportive. Um, and I think maybe because my mom always had like illnesses and never feeling well, I think my parents, you know, understood what I was going through. That's right. There's also big advocates. There's also a cultural element, right? I mean, right. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, about your culture and how it would be common in certainly in, in New York circles for a parent to say, I have the same thing. Talk to us about that. Well, I think, uh, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I think my mom, even if it's, my mom just always likes to like make it about herself. So when she would, I would take these <laughs> symptoms being like, I have a headache. It feels like a man is like squeezing my brain. And she'd be like, oh, you know, so we had the other day, I felt like I had a headache and the man was squeezing my brain. And me and my sister would be like, why are you making this about yourself? So <laughs> I think there was always like a lot of comedy happening when I was sick. But, uh, and I think it was hard too. like friends didn't understand because listen, I was always the girl that was like, oh, I have a stomach ache. I don't want to go out tonight. This is before that. So I was like, kind of when I got sick, it was like the girl who cried wolf. I was like, well, how can we believe you now? You know, I think no one really believed me friend wise until I got like the pick line in my arm because they were like, oh, okay, clearly this is serious. So even with that positive diagnosis and having doctors treat you an infectious disease doctor, your friends still thought you were just being a whiner, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say so. So I'm just curious how you found the strength to continue on. You were sick in September, you were a senior in college, and you still were able to graduate with all of these symptoms. So how did you pull that off? I think, I mean, you know, being dyslexic, I always know that I have to, you have to work really hard to do something that most people like, it may take them like a day to write an essay, but me, I'd be like, okay, I have to prepare. It's going to take me two weeks. I should do this and that. Um, I didn't, I don't really, I didn't know any other really way, but to not work hard. So I just finished it. I mean, I was always just doing the work. I probably didn't, I didn't really did not have much of a social life. Uh, I was going home a lot. Uh, yeah, I really just somehow finished it. I wouldn't say it was a fun year for me. Well, I think that's another indicator of, of your strength and determination. So that's, that's a big kudos to you in that regard. And 
I do want to focus now on your graduation. You mentioned that it was in this large environment and you started to have your first real anxiety or panic attack at that time. And it's hard to describe what Lyme related anxiety and panic can feel like compared to something you really have never had before prior to getting sick. So for our listeners, can you describe what that was like for you in the best way possible to have that overwhelming anxiety out of nowhere? So yeah, I was just in this like huge factory and I guess because with Lyme, it kind of messes with your like vision. It messed with my, it, it felt like the room was like so big. And I think it was more also when I'm really tired and the thought of me being really far away from somewhere I could sit or lay down. I think that's the thing that gave me anxiety. Um, I'm trying to think how to like describe what it feels like. It's, it just, again, it feels like the feeling you get when um, you're in a movie and someone you know, the scary guy like opens the door and, and it's like, it's like that type of feeling. Um, but you're getting that in these like everyday scenarios. So, and and to me, that's something we've come to learn as that fight or flight mode where it's sort of, you're stuck on overdrive, right? Is that how, is that how you felt where you just felt like your body was constantly running on overdrive and you just were constantly stimulated and, and overwhelmed? Yeah, I would say that's how it felt. So now at this point you graduate, and you just start to get sicker and sicker and sicker until you find Dr. Raxlin. So walk us through the period of time between your graduation and then the following September when you found Dr. Raxlin. How did your symptoms progress and, and how sick did you get up until that point? So yeah, I would say my fatigue got worse, swollen knees really got worse, tunnel vision. Um, but again, I just really thought oh, I'm doing a lot. So that's probably why I feel sick, but it, eventually this Lyme is going to go away. And then I guess at one point I just was, I couldn't get out of bed, but I was still like going to these internships and filming. Um, and yeah, and then I went to Dr. Rax and I think I was really sick. And my dad went to a support group for Lyme and they said, oh, you got to go to Raxlin. She's got to do the IV. And so we got an appointment with Dr. Raxlin. Um, so yeah, my parents were like very supportive and they were like my advocates. So Rich is going to get to this later, but I have to ask about Lyme rage because many people when they are, you know, they have severe anxiety and they have severe Lyme disease, develop Lyme rage, which is so the opposite of what your personality is. You're an extremely funny person, but did you ever have moments when you were so sick that you experienced Lyme rage? I had Lyme rage more when I was like in the treatment, but that was, I don't even think that was Lyme rage. I think I was just jealous of people. Like, I think it was just like, I remember being like, I hate healthy people. I hate everyone. Like, and we can get into it later, but I started like filming my journey and posting it on YouTube. And so my, and my dad growing up, I mean, he's a dentist, but growing up, my dad would like always film stuff. So, uh, I think that's probably like where I got my interest in it, but my I have a video of my dad, like filming me having a breakdown, but I don't even think it was like Lyme. I mean, it kind of is, but it was more about like this, my boyfriend I was seeing at the time and how he didn't want to come over. But at the same time, it was about Lyme and how am I ever going to get on a plane? And I'm like crying, but it's like so funny, but it's like very sad. Um, So yeah, I, I definitely had the Lyme rage, but I think Lyme rage is also more like when you have extreme sensitivity to noise. I've had that too, where like, like just any like simple noise. I'm like, ah, like I can't like that would mean more being like Lyme rage, just little noises like really affecting me. At any point, did your friends, family, 
members or doctors ever think that possibly this was psychological after getting the treatment with the infectious disease doctor, treating with the herbalist and before Dr. Raxlin, you know, you, we've, we love your content on social media, but you posted a very serious video, I think it was last month for Lyme Disease Awareness Month, where it just showed you having these breakdowns, where you just were having an emotional breakdown and, you, and your, you, your family were recording this for you. Right. Now, somebody on the outside may look in and say, hey, what's wrong with that person, right? So did anybody ever accuse you of just being mentally ill versus physically ill? Um, I remember maybe it was right before Raxlin or like also... I think it was like before I saw Rax and I did see some other doctors, like one doctor asked me, I think she thought like basically claiming that I had AIDS or like suggesting it. I was like, mate, she's like, can your father step out of the room? Cause again, my dad would go to all the appointments with me. And she was like, have you ever slept with someone without a condom? And I was like, what? And then, you know, I was like, no, I don't know. And I was like, what? I was so confused. And she was like claiming that maybe I had AIDS. And then another doctor, neurological doctor was like, you don't have Lyme. So I've definitely, there were doctors, I just don't remember that I've been to that didn't believe me about the Lyme. Um, and yeah, at one point I went to a psychiatrist, but I think I, we always knew that I had Lyme. So I never had that feeling of like, oh, you're just crazy. Like go, just go on some antidepressants. So I was very lucky in that aspect. So Tori, although you knew you had Lyme disease for sure, and your family knew, you mentioned some doctors did tell you that you did not have Lyme disease. So what were they saying was wrong with you? Were they saying there was another physical condition? Were they saying it was psychological? What were they telling you that really was causing all of your symptoms at that time? I just, yeah, I think they just thought it was like something else. They were like, you should look into something else. I did an MRI on my brain scan, came back fine. Maybe that was for MS, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, but yeah, I got doctors, which is again, like the, like telling me I had AIDS. I was like, you're telling a 21 year old girl that I have AIDS. Like, which, which <laughs> like I hooked up, I'm know. sorry, go ahead, Tori. I was like, in my head, I'm like, I mean, one time I made out with a DJ in Brooklyn, like, did he give me AIDS? Like, you know what I mean? Like your mind is like going crazy. I'm just curious what symptoms or what did you say to this doctor that made her believe that you had AIDS when really you had Lyme disease? And I should say just, but really you had Lyme disease. I mean, I think I just told her the symptoms I told you, like fatigue, neurological symptoms. Um, Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So it just goes to show you that people are willing to go so far to say you have something like AIDS when that's very unlikely because they don't want to go down the line world, which I think is very sad still to this day. Yeah. Um, now, talk to us more about, about Dr. Ra- uh, Raxlin. So how was that experience different than all of the other doctors up until that time? Well, I think he was the first like Lyme literate doctor I saw. And he was very sweet because so his background is he used to be a psychiatrist. And then he said he realized that a lot of his patients actually ended up having Lyme disease. So in that aspect, he was very understanding about like, you know, not Tori as a Lyme patient, just Tori as like who she is and her neuroses. And so we were, we worked together on like, you know, doing the IV, but slowly and me being very scared about doing, you know, the react, like the IV. And um, so, yeah, he was a very good doctor. So after walking away from your first appointment, was the immediate takeaway that you were going to get IV antibiotics? I think we did, we wanted to get culture on my blood, which I can't remember the name of it, but uh, so that took a month, but I was always like crying after the appointments because 
I was just like, why me? Why am I a sick kid? Like I was very upset. Like none of my friends have to deal with this. Um, and then I guess, I think the second appointment is when we decided for the IV. So the blood culture obviously came back positive for Lyme disease. Yes. Were there any other co-infections from that, that blood culture? Um, no, but I did have, uh, wait, I always forget is Babesia. That's the co-infection or that's the Lyme disease one. Babesia is a co-infection. Yep. Oh yeah. So I had that. And Babesia is a co-infection that's not treated by antibiotics. So that's an anti-malaria medication. So is, is that, was, are you thinking maybe Bartonella? No, I did do, I did have both, but I did do the anti-malaria medication. It was like a yellow liquid I would have to take. So now, now when you started the antibiotics, obviously there's a lot of fear that goes into that. You're going to have, as you called a, what did you call it? A dangling, um, I don't want to mis, misquote you from earlier. What? A Herxheimer reaction? Oh. No, no, the pick line. Oh, I said a wiener hanging a from wiener. my arm. <laughs> so now you, have, now you have a wiener hanging from your arm. I mean, that's obviously yeah. not a pleasant experience. So walk us through what it was like to get the pick line put in and then getting your first infusion of antibiotics. So yeah, I got this pick line in my arm. And again, like not Tori as a human is just a neurotic person. So I'm nervous. So I'm laying on the table. The guy's like, the doctor's like, don't move. He's like poking me. He's like, it's almost in. I'm like, this feels like I'm losing my virginity again. It was all just a very odd experience. And I get this pick line and now I have a nurse come over and she's giving me the infusion for the first time. Oh, and if, if you don't, if you have a reaction, we can flush it out. And I'm like, what reaction? Oh, I don't know. Your throat might close up anyway. Here we go. I'm like, oh my God. And you know, I'm just, it's, it was really scary. I think I would be more scared now doing this than then. But also I think when you're so sick, you are willing to do more things that would scare you. Um, like when you're not sick, like looking back, I'm like, how did I do that? But I think I just was like so excited to get better. So yeah, then I did about eight months of IV antibiotics. The first three weeks, three months were like very bad because I was herxing and the fatigue got worse. The anxiety became really bad. Um, but then I would slowly start to see things better. Like my knee swelling uh, went away very quickly within like six weeks. I remember seeing that. And then by the end of the eight months, I got the IV out. And now looking back and like hearing so many people's stories, I feel like I was so lucky that the IV worked. I never got a blood clot. Um, I did pretty well on the medication. I mean, I would take breaks here and there and I felt I did not feel good doing it, but I never had, I went, I went to the hospital once I had, I think I was allergic to rosefrin. I had like hives all over my body. Um, but there was nothing like, I was always slightly getting better. And I think that was very important to Dr. Raxlin. That was showing that clearly like this was the right treatment for me. So you mentioned you were allergic to IV rosefrin. So were you on another, another oral uh, IV antibiotic or were you just dealing with those, those rashes? No, I think we switched off, but throughout the eight months, he would do different things, you know, like I can't remember, but he'd be like, we got to kill this thing and we're going to kill it by doing these two anti-IV and maybe that one orally, and then you'll take the anti-malaria thing. So it was always like a little puzzle he was doing with the so he, IVs and I always really trusted him. So you were using a combination of IVs and orals and hitting it from every angle to address every co-infection. And also it sounds like boost up uh, your immune system. So it sounds like you did other things aside just from antibiotics as well. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, I was doing vitamin drips and like glutathione pushes and I was like eating healthy. Um, yeah. So I was 
-hmm. And th th those are key to supplement or complement the treatment of IV antibiotics to, to get the glutathione, to get the, the Myers cocktail to boost up your body. But I do want to ask, at this point, you stopped the herbs because of the herxing. So did Dr. Raxlin now tell you that, hey, look, you probably need to get worse before you get better. And that's why you tolerated the herxing better than earlier on in your journey? I think so. Yeah. Um, and I also think I probably was just more knowledgeable. And it's like, once you have an eye pick line in your arm, it's not like, oh, I'm, oh, it's, it's not like a food that you don't like, like, oh, I'm going to stop this. It's like, oh, no, you just got to keep going. But also I would tell him like, I don't feel right, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, just, I just was just more, much more knowledgeable. And where were you at in your life at this point? Were you, were you a full-time patient and healing? Were you working an internship? I mean, it sounds like you were probably just fully dedicated to healing right now. Yeah, I was fully de dedicated to healing. Um, like I said, I moved back home, but that's when I started to like teach myself video editing. And I started making all these videos about Lyme disease. They were like funny I, what did I sketches just like my daily life and having my parents involved. And, um, because I really looked at YouTube for people's stories. It made me feel so much better when I was sick, but I just realized like no one's making funny things. And like, that's how my outlet was always just being funny. So I started making these videos and people started loving them. And, you know, my only friends at the time were people on Facebook who also had Lyme disease, part of the Lyme group. And they were like, this made me feel so much better. Thank you so much. So I would say throughout that eight months, that's what I like, I really was focusing on. It was, you know, something to like look forward to. Sorry, were you, did you reach remission at the end of this eight month window? Um, I would say I was about 80% better. And once, once you got the pick line out and the eight month window was up, did you do anything else? Or are you currently doing anything to sort of keep, keeping your body healthy and, and continuing your, your health in the positive direction? I mean, I, so that ended what 2014, but yeah, since then I've had like little flare ups and kind of what they call like a cleanup. Like, you know, this year I was dealing with the parasite. I didn't know it just little but I did have a bad relapse three years ago, but I didn't do IV, but, um, I went on antibiotics, but you know, when you do the antibiotics, like it causes, you know, like gut issues. So I do live like a very healthy life. And I always figured out, like, just kind of how to like live with not feeling a hundred percent all the time. But I would so say the best I ever felt was right after the IV because I don't know. I don't know why that was, but I mean, I feel pretty good now. So where are you at today? Health-wise, you mentioned that you were at 80% when you finished DIVs. What would you assess your health at today? Percentage wise, you know, your pre-Lyme life was hundred percent. Where would you say you are today? I would say like 85 to 90, I would say. I mean, I live like a very normal life. Um, you know, I like work, I go out. I mean, I do eat like very healthy and like I said, this past year, I was dealing with like a parasite, but didn't know it. So I'm dealing with that. And it's just like whack-a-mole. It's like, okay, deal with this issue, this issue. Um, but yeah. And I think as I've gotten older, I just learned, like, I have to like be my own advocate because when I had the relapse three months ago, I, three years ago, I kind of just like pushed everything under the rug. And I think with Lyme, it's like, I've noticed, like, even if it's like a symptom that just, it like, it slowly creeps in. And then it, and then it like, 
And then you're like six months later, you're like in bed with this like extreme symptom. So you kind of have to like really listen to your body. So before I hand this back over to Rich, I want to ask you one final question. And that is if, if you had to look back on your entire journey with Lyme disease, what's the most important tip you would give to our listeners to help them shortcut their healing journey? Oh my God, shortcut. Well, I guess there is no shortcut with Lyme disease. It is, it's just, I think when you're in it, it just feels so long. And I think knowing that it is going to be that long and kind of taking it day by day. And, you know, when I was really sick, I would have like one good day every month. Oh, okay. Then it became one good day every three weeks. So it's kind of like trying to remember those good days, even though there's so many bad days. So Tori, let's talk about um, your toolbox. We interviewed Allie Hilfiger. And one of the things that Allie shared with us is that she had this toolbox that she developed over time uh, that she utilized to heal. And then ultimately she kept her tools with her so that when she has some challenges, she reaches back into the toolbox and she keeps herself healthy. It sounds like you've done the same thing. So talk to us yeah. about now um, what it means to live a very clean life or a healthy life, I think you may have described it as. What are all of those, what are the elements of that clean life that you're living so that you're staying as healthy as you are? Um, so, yeah, I would, I mean, I am gluten free. I try to be dairy free. I don't need sugar. I don't really drink. Um, and I try to work out and just like in terms of like food and living a very healthy life. And I see a Lyme doctor now, but not that much. I see more of like a nutritionist Lyme doctor and like, we'll go through my symptoms, um, and determine, you know, what I want to do. And then sometimes I do the infrared sauna, but it's also like recently I've the past year since like the Paris, I like, like feeling better. Like I like doing all these like different things and learning about it. Like it's been, I wouldn't say fun for me, but I like knowing like I'm doing the best I can to feel better. So how did you discover the importance of having a clean diet, for example, where you're removing gluten, sugar, and, um, and dairy from your diet? I was doing that during the IV, but I would say I did it more so this year because I was having a lot of gut issues. And uh, then I did kind of like what a, a keto diet, I would say, because I was detoxing. And apparently when you do keto, it's really good for detoxing. And I, yeah, I just learned like, cause I think I like saw the results and I was like, oh, I do feel better. I, I wouldn't be like, now I know there's people that like have cured themselves just by eating. Now that's not going to be me, but when I eat healthy, I do feel like better. I feel like lighter. I feel just better in general. So let's talk about the exercise element of your healing program. We interviewed Dr. Jur uh, Dr. Biroscano, Joseph Biroscano a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, we actually uh, entitled his episode, The First Lyme Literate Doctor. And Dr. Biroscano was, was treating Lyme patients in the early 80s uh, mm -hmm. and was actually, was actually attacked um, and his license was almost removed because he was using a number of what are now uh, traditional protocols, but at that time they were, they were radical protocols. And one of the things he shared with us is that none of his patients who he treated got better unless they engaged in some form of activity, some form of exercise. So talk mm. to us about what exercise you were doing during the time that you were chronically ill and what exercise you continue to do to prevent yourself from relapsing. So I think when I was chronically ill, I, I don't, I think I was pretty much in bed. I, maybe I was walking around. Um, 
I was taking like some comedy classes. So I would go to that like once a week, but I wouldn't say I was like exercising, but I, again, I was living in New York City. So I was definitely like walking around, but not to any, I wouldn't even call it exercise. And then throughout the years, I just do Pilates, I would say. And do you believe that's an important element of, of maintaining your health? I would say, yeah, I would say it is, especially now, because I feel like my issue right now is like my body can't get rid of toxins, even whatever's left over. And I notice that like, if I do exercise or move my body, like it just helps like the circulation flow. And it also like mentally feels better. Um, Yeah. And it also feels good knowing that like, oh, like I'm really strong. Maybe like nine years ago, I would be like in bed. Like I can't do this. So that kind of feels nice. So sorry, another another observation I just want to make is it seems to me that you had um, had a lot of foundational pieces in place before you got sick. For example, you had a really warm, supportive family yeah. that despite having despite having some cultural exchanges about who was sicker, um, right. you really had a group of people who loved you and supported you and believed you. So you didn't really have to deal with a lot of the social issues that a lot of people with Lyme disease have to deal with, which of course creates self-doubt and yeah. the requirement of validation. You were also very lucky because you grew up on Long Island. You're the you're the daughter of a doctor, and um, and your supportive parents when you got sick brought you back to a place where you could get diagnosed early. So you didn't have to deal with all of this sort of self doubt either, or this sort of external doubt that comes from from the medical community. And I think again, part of that blessing for you is your dad's a doctor, right? He came with you to doctor yeah. appointments, and and they were going to be they were going to be respectful you know, as a professional courtesy to your dad, and he was going to make sure that they were respectful to his daughter, right? So you had some really good foundational pieces that didn't allow you, didn't require you to have to go on this emotional journey. But another piece of this that I think is really powerful that I'd like to develop with you now is your comedic aptitude and the importance of comedy keeping people generally happy and, and the way you use that to help you to heal because there's two pieces to, um, to I think um, being happy and using comedy as a way of, of keeping happy. The first thing of course is emotionally happy and mm-hmm. the impact that that has on your healing. But there's also physical chemicals that will allow you to heal and grow that come from comedy and happiness. So can you talk about how your, your um, I guess your incidental studying of comedy played a role in expediting your healing? So, yeah, I mean, when I do comedy, I make a video, I do stand up. It's like a, it's like a high for me. Like I get like, I imagine what it feels like to get, I mean, before Lyme, I've never done, I I don't do drugs. Like I'm too scared to do it. And, but that's like, I get, like, I get a high and like, I guess adrenaline when I make a video and I like people's reaction. Um, I don't think I went into making videos when I was sick to be like, oh, this is going to make me better. It was kind of just like, this is my outlet. Like some people, you know, after like a fight, people are, someone's like, I got to go take a walk. But it's like, for me, it's like, if I'm angry or sad or annoyed, my outlet is always just like telling a story and like, it's going to be funny, not, you know, and, or making a video. So I think it did help my journey. And also it made me feel really good that like a lot of people related and I was helping people because like, I can't financially help people, but I can help people in terms of like them laughing about this 
awful disease. And how do you think that helped them, Tori, when they were laughing about the comedic presentation that you made and presented on YouTube? Um, well, I think it helped them because it made them feel not alone. And even I felt alone, even though I had such a supportive family and I had a good doctor and, but it just, you just feel very alone because you just think like you're never going to get better. So the, you believe that the classes that you were taking on comedy, which gave you an incentive to move and to walk to the classes were helpful to you in your healing journey. And you believe that the outlet that you that you identified, which was creating YouTube videos, gave you some, some chemical boosts and gave you mm -hmm. the ability to feel validated and gave other people the ability to feel validated, which then allowed them to have uh, the belief they needed to go forward on the healing journey. Yeah. So one of the things that we talked to you about offline was a brilliant book written by an author named Norman Cousins, who's no longer with us, but... Uh, he talked about how he went on a healing journey when he was suffering from cancer. And mm. what Dr. Norman Cousins talked about um, in the anatomy of an illness as perceived by a patient was that when he was treating for, when he was treating, he would go for his treatment, then he would leave the hospital and rather than stay inpatient, he would go to a hotel and he would play comedic movies that he found to be funny. And I mm. thought it was interesting that when we interviewed Ali Hilfiger, what she told us was that she would go and watch funny movies as well when she was going on her, her, her healing journey. She said anything that had Diane Keaton in the movie, she found to be funny. And that was something that she healed. So, so we're starting to see like another parallel develop here with you, where rather than you watching, you were creating, but you were creating right. a, a comedic environment and that enhanced your healing. So talk to us about your thoughts on how that could be used as a healing protocol for other people who are on a Lyme disease journey. Well, yeah, before you told me about this, I, I mean, people always say like, oh, laughter heals all wounds. And, but I didn't really think that was an actual thing, but I guess it, I think it, it can be. Um, now I should like tell my mom to do that, but <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. I actually like really want to read the book because it makes sense. Like when you, the endorphins you feel when you watch something, maybe it is it's, I think when you have Lyme and you're so sick, like your body is just feeling so ill. So you don't really have like any endorphin, like nothing's exciting happening in your life. Everything's so sad. So when you watch a movie that makes you laugh, it kind of like wakes up that little side that your body forgot you had. And yeah, so I can see that happening. Right. So it certainly helps you emotionally. It'll help you to feel better emotionally and help you to deal with all of the fight or flight challenges that Lyme disease is going to create for you that you and Matt did such a great job of, of discussing before. But it also does, of course, remember when you're in that fight or flight mode, you have all of these, you have all these chemicals, cortisol and, and, and adrenaline yeah. running through your body. And by, by engaging in the behaviors that you're engaging in, such as creating these comedic, um, these comedic um, videos, what mm -hmm. you are doing is you are now creating some happy drugs, right? Whether it be dopamine or oxytocin or serotonin or endorphins, you had these very happy drugs going through or these reward drugs going to offset the negative chemicals that were causing you to be sick. And that's, that's exactly where I wanted to go with you because it seems to me that one of the reasons why you had such a good experience is because you had a good cultural and social and emotional foundation before you got sick. And that allowed you to have, uh, to have a good experience. So 
I think it's important to identify what those specific elements are so that we can share them with other people. You just happen to be blessed with a good family and a good culture yeah. and a good and a good foundation, which then allowed you to focus just on the physical healing. But uh, but it is important to identify those those issues. So I you know I, I really enjoyed having this part of our discussion uh, because it really is so uh, so powerful. So. Um, I, I know we, we have a short time with you and we've used so much of your time already. So in the last few minutes that we have together, I want to ask you to help us with one more thing. Um, if God forbid your mom, who, I, who I'd love to meet because she seems like she's a great character, I would love to meet her. Um, yeah. uh, I, uh, I, let's say God forbid your mom came to visit you uh, and, and when she came into your room, uh, and of course I can't, I can't uh, describe her accent, so I'd like you to describe what she would say to you okay. in her voice. Um, she came in and she says, Tori, I have a tick on my arm. What do I do so that I don't get sick? What would you tell her? Um, I would tell, well, my mom would be like, oh my God, I got a tick on my arm. She'd be like, oh, I'm freaking out. And I would probably be like, well, first off, this is so, I don't even know how to take a tick out of someone, which is crazy because I have Lyme disease myself. That would be like me being like, I own a car dealership, but I don't know how to drive. <laughs> so I would probably call my dad. This is realistic. I would be like, how do you take a tick out? And he'd be like, I don't know, Google it. So I'd probably Google it. And then we would take the tick out and we put it in a bag. And then we would probably go to a doctor and we would probably go from there. Um, but yeah, now I'm much more like, I look for ticks. My, my roommate just told me that there was an article saying that ticks in California are in the sand. And I'm like, what? Um, but for a few years, I was very like looking for ticks, but now I, I honestly don't really look for ticks, but also I'm not really, I'm not really in areas that I should, but I would say my Lyme disease really affected my friends too. Like I have a friend who was living in Ohio when I was really sick and she was working at like a huge corporation, it was like a campus and they had really tall grass. And in front of like thousands of people, you know, they said, do you have any problem, any questions? And she raised her hand and didn't say, oh, I'm worried about Lyme disease. She just said, when are you cutting the grass? And everyone started laughing. But then late, and then her boss was like, you really embarrassed me with your question. This was like, and then she was like, well, my friend has Lyme disease and I don't ever want to get Lyme disease. And then I guess, you know, the, and then they kept call, calling her grass girl. So this, but because she was trying to like protect herself and the rest of this company, people were like making fun of her about it. So I don't really know where I went off there, but, um, oh, but I'm, I'm glad you did because it's good that they made fun of her because they were all, they would all have gained some humor and have the positive reward chemicals go through their system and protect them from, uh, from the, the, the problems associated with Lyme disease. So Tori, but I, I want to offer you a couple of thoughts um, the first thing I'd want you to do is not go and Google how to remove a tick if mom comes in with a tick. You want to go to the Tick Bite Blueprint from the Tick Boot Camp website, because right there, the gal who owns the car dealership but doesn't know how to drive will learn how to drive. And the, and the, uh, and the tips you'll need to remove the tick from mom will be right there on our website. But the second thing I really want to strongly urge you to do is to make tick checks a part of your daily routine. And I don't mean just say, hey, now it's time for Tori to do a tick check. And I'd love to see what that would look like comedically on a, on a video, uh, but I, I really urge you to make a tick check a part of your daily experience because getting reinfected would be a terrible thing for somebody with a compromised immune system. So um, if you if you 
do bring tick checks into your grooming routine, whether it be when you're showering. And I've seen some videos with you showering. So maybe one of them, one of them can include you uh, doing a tick check. If you do that regularly, uh, I, I think that would really benefit you. And we'll, we'll talk more in the future about uh, some of the tools we want to develop for teaching folks how to do tick checks. So can yeah. you promise me Ms. Car Dealership that you will learn how to drive the car and you will learn how to check all of its vitals as you're, uh, as you're driving the car? Yes, I will. And I do, I do check for ticks if I'm in areas that um, I know that ticks would be, but I guess they're hiding in the beaches now. I don't know. Yeah, they're everywhere. And, you know, I mean, one of the things you always have to be concerned about, I don't know if you have companion animals, but if you have a cat that goes in or out or a dog that goes in or out or, you know, people are in other places, they bring ticks in. So a lot of people believe that they're only going to get ticks um, or come in contact with ticks when they're going hiking. And actually, as it turns out, what the research shows that only 25 percent of the people who have Lyme disease were bitten by a tick when they were on an outing. Actually, 75% mm -hmm. of the people who get Lyme disease, probably like you, would get it in their own backyard or in their own house. So, mm -hmm. um, so what we're doing when we're checking only for the, um, the times when we go hiking is that we're only looking for the exception rather than the rule. And that's why it should become a part of our regular routine. And I can tell you, Tori, that uh, I really enjoyed this uh, this interview. You are really as funny as I thought you were going to be. Matt and I had to keep muting ourselves so that we wouldn't laugh aloud and ruin all the brilliance that you uh, you uh, shared with our listeners. So thank you so much, Tori, for, for joining us. And we, we really look forward to working with you and and um, in the future. And we thank you for giving us all the time that you, you shared with us today. Oh, of course. And thanks for having me. And I, I really hope that, you know, I help people and I don't know, it just, it just makes me really sad that like some people can't get better. And I feel very lucky that like, I, I mean, I'm not a hundred percent better, but I'm lucky that like I was able to get better. And it just makes me so sad that some people like can't afford treatment. And I don't know, it just, be, it becomes very like emotional for me about it. So if I can help people through laughter, I'm happy to happy that can happen. Sorry, I, I want you to give yourself a little bit more credit too, because um, you have gotten better. And what the purpose of our podcast is, is to give people models to look to on how to get better, right? That's the shortcut. And so much of what we, we developed here together, I think is going to be helpful to folks who are on the journey. So I know you're sad that uh, there are people who are not getting better, but I'm excited that we interviewed you because I think you're going to help people to get better because they're gonna use you as a model and, and, and recreate some of the things that were created for you by that wonderful family that you have, but they're also gonna be able to walk in your shoes from that point forward and get better. So I thank you for, uh, for sharing everything you shared with us. And I think you're going to be a wonderful model for healing for the folks who listen to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Tori Piskin. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Tori Piskin, please visit our Instagram page at Tori Piskin. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank your community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.